<laughs> well, we are in the weeds now, so ideas, go. Uh, hire a marketing person and put up billboards. Nice. <laughs> This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 207 for the week of June 11th, 2018. I am Gremlin Connection, David T. Cole, and I'm here with Hillbilly Sarah D. Bunting, Jelly Donut Enjoyer Tara Ariano, it's on my forehead, isn't it? And Dr. Claw, Jeb Lund. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Welcome to another Extra Hot Great. Uh, joining us this week is returning champion Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Hello. Hi, Jeb. I'm not their champion of anything. <laughs> came of in dead hearts. last. <laughs> Never mind that. <laughs> it's just an expression. Um, we are here, of course, with Jeb because we are talking about claws. And Jeb happens to live, according to Google, a 40-something minute drive away from Palmetto, where the events of the show take place. So let's start with verisimilitude. Jeb, how well does the show reflect the reality of your life? I actually used to live a lot closer than that. I used to drink in Palmetto. Um, okay. I, I lived in Sarasota for years, I, like five, six years. I don't, um, it's, it, it's good. It's better than Great Expectations, which was uh, shot in the, the same area, the, the oh, Ethan right. Hawke one. It's yes. better than the movie Palmetto. Uh, yes. Some things they, you know... There, there are some scenes of, of like affluence that are not reflective of Paul Meadow. Um, mm -hmm. Like there's a scene in the first season when um, uh, Polly is playing tennis with the woman who played the season three demon on Angel. Yes. And uh, and that's filmed at the Katazan, which is the house of John Ringling of the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus Fortune. Oh. Um, and uh, the Katazan was also the house that the uh, the crazy woman who listened to Bessemi Mucho all the time in, in that Great Expectations roommate, uh, remake uh, lived in. Mm -hmm. So like there are little bits where if you know the area, you're like, that's not remotely Palmetto. Right. Uh, but the the kind of like the teal painted, you know, gum sticky sidewalks uh, in these awful strip malls like the strip mall that their nail salon is in feels mm -hmm. very authentically palmetto mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> i uh there there could be like more resentful white bikers threatening to stab you in bars i feel but <laughs> uh, who are not a, yeah i mean guys who are not affiliated with the mob guys who just want to you know it's like a personal initiative thing for them mm -hmm. <laughs> got it uh, okay um, well, I was fortunate enough at the ATX Festival, which just happened this past weekend, to go to the Claws panel where Niecy Nash actually attended, which I was not expecting her and I was not prepared. Um, she is amazing. But I always forget that this show is actually created by a man whose name is Elliot Lawrence. And um, he was at the panel as well. And they asked him, you know, what was the genesis for the show? And he said... Love stories about badass women, duh, so do we all. And he is also is fascinated by nail art. And so I have to ask the men on our panel, what do you know about nail art? Or is this something that you even register? Um, I just the practicality of the nail art kind of fascinates mm -hmm. slash frightens me because there's a scene yep. in either I think it's the premiere where um oh boy, I'm so bad at character names. Uh where Hank 
who's, who's Uncle saying? Daddy. Uncle, Uncle Daddy, Daddy. Thank you. Played geez. by Dean Norris. Terrible. Um, he has a memorial framed picture, nail, Coke nail art of yeah. his late wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, throughout the season, the first season, a lot of characters have doodads that hang off the nails. Uh, there is a nail charms. Patron. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a patron that comes in who has this whole shtick that one of the, uh, education board members, uh, <laughs> traded her, got her seat because she traded in like a shitload of deer meat. So she's going mm-hmm. into the next, uh, like PTA meeting or board meeting, whatever it is with like giant deer nail art, including like antlers that span three fingers wide. Yeah. Uh, so the practicality of walking around with that kind of stuff sort of fascinates me. Like you're, you're at a disadvantage when you going have to the bathroom to start with for stuff like typing, using yeah. iPads, all that kind of stuff. Never mind actually having like nigh appliances on your, your fingers. So <laughs> that part is just sort of like really fascinating how these people live. Yeah. Jeb. I, I mean, I remember when, when like going to the salon and getting like the acrylic nail thing really, really took off and maybe the later eighties as, mm-hmm. as just sort of like a nationwide thing. And there was a place near you that did it. And I don't know if that's maybe my perceiving it after it had already become a thing. Like maybe I, that's just when I started noticing ads for it, but like the line back then was, Oh, well it destroys your underlying nails. Mm-hmm. And so I've always just thought of them as being like a super bad idea for that reason. <laughs> and then the and I don't know if that's true. It might be completely wrong now. They might have different glue or whatever. Um, and I mean, all the impracticality stuff also registers with me. But I also wonder if, like, maybe I have an internalized kind of classist dislike of it. Like, that's really trashy. And so I just I don't know. It's one of those things where I kind of felt a couple years ago. I was like, I'm gonna stop having an opinion on that because <laughs> like, I'm probably wrong and I'm probably not being the best person on it and like it's not for me so like if you're having a great time great but personally i think on like at a gut level i'm always gonna go like that looks super dumb (laughs) you know i mean (laughs) i'm from new jersey so this is normal to have like the entire yeah it is witches on people's nails along with um inception i did I did see a set of nails once that was like the entire storyline of it was like vignettes from Godfathers one and two. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. With, like with people mm-hmm. on them and everything, like the cannoli oh, yeah. and the toilet and, and all that. It, yeah. Like, um, yeah. Tessio. Uh, yeah. Everybody was on awesome. there. And then like a, the, there was like the Fredo nail was the ring finger of her left hand, which she like wasn't happy about. But you had to put it there. I, I mean, I had a whole <laughs> conversation I've always sort of thought of it like, again, I am from and of Jersey in the 80s and I running a cash register in a mall did have the long nails and it was very (laughs) difficult to do. And now I'm just like a, you know, as short as possible to still allow paint person because I just can't. I would love to like have good fellas across both hands and my big toes, (laughs) but it's just not my life. And the last nail is noodles and ketchup. Yes, <laughs> like a schnook, yeah. Wait, or just if, like if a I, picture of schnook. If I make may make a suggestion here, every member of the E Street Band. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> How many members is that though? There's got to be ten, right? A bunch. Yeah. Yeah. If there's not, yeah, no, for no particular reason, just fill them in with like back members of Yes or something like that. Really confusing. <laughs> sure. issue. 
Or the guys in the the Gaslight Anthem. Mm -hmm. That new guy in Bon Jovi. Sure. Um, But there's like, I went to this exhibit one time at the American Folk Art Museum. uh, And one of the exhibits was uh, this single grain of rice surrounded by um, magnifying glasses on which the entire life story of Jackie Robinson had been painted using a single horsehair. Wow. Uh, So this is how I sort of feel about nail art. Like I'm not, it's not for me to do, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I respect the, I respect the culture and the like actual artisanship that that goes into it, especially on this show, which, as I was saying a few weeks ago when we when I brought it up and around the dial, like even if you have it on mute and you're just not trying to care about the plot, which you should because it's always bonkers. But um, like it's just so fun and flashy to look at, even though it's not this is stuff I would never wear or do. It's Mm -hmm. great. I have a question. Do people that get their crazy nails, do they do ever do crazy stuff with their toenails? Yes, people so, do. Okay. See, that's just like, and then how do they walk? It's less, it's less common, but it does happen. Okay. All right. All right. Back to the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a little, oh, yeah, just that, a little sidebar. Oh, yeah. That guy, the show. Um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, so Claus season two just premiered and we have a new big bad in the form of Franca Patente from Run Lola Run is Zlata. The long lost, estranged, just returned sister of Riva, the former uh, head baddie from the end of last season. And I have to say, I thought her accent was a little um, here and there. Uh, I mean, she's not Russian, but, you know, fine. Neither is Catherine Reese, who plays Olga, her daughter. um, And I thought her accent was a lot more uh, consistent. But I really like the crazy energy that she brings to the show. Jeb, you you've watched season one. How do you how would you say she fits in with the with the show or does she shake it up in an interesting way for you? I think it fits very much with the show, which, um, you know, kind of like the looking at the the nails like we were just talking about is just a sumptuous sort of color delight <laughs> as a whole show. I mean, it's, yeah. Compared to like every other serious hour long drama like Ozark, which was like, what if Breaking Bad was blue? <laughs> like, you know, it, it, so it's it's nice to see that pop. But also it is their their characterization of Russianness is so gaudy and over the top. It reminded mm-hmm. me of um, judging uh, judging drama and debate when kids would do dramatic interp and just and it it's <laughs> like interp. Nice. Yeah, it, it's just so <laughs> big and everything and i get that that's kind of what they're going for is like everything is just this side of camp but right. it's kind of like if you were a russian mobster but filtered through like the the um overly like emotionally histrionic characterization that you would also do in another cutting and another interp for like somebody's jewish grandmother right it's just all these rolled <laughs> r's and like you know you can just it, it's just feasting in the mouth on the accent and and like if that's what you're going for and that's your aim, it's great. But if you're, if you wanted it to be more real, it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a show where uncle daddy was doing Coke and crying at his garage sale on his front yard. Oh no, that was, that he was, was doing exquisite. Coke. That was powdered sugar. Oh, that's yeah, right. Like, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Well, he was, his Coke, na- he's kissing his Coke nail. Yes, while his mouth is yeah. Rhymed with white powder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think you can pull back on this show or, Alternatively, I don't think you can go loud and go wrong on this show. No. Yeah. My thing with the Russian, well, I I think it was a good call. I think she's an upgrade, 
But when you have a where like Breaking Bad every season, they, they escalated the odd. You know, he went from neighborhood drug dealer and he met the, the, the neighborhood drug dealer and then the local and then like the distributor mm-hmm. and then the mafia guy. This seems to be following the same path. I shed a tear for the smaller stakes of the first season. <laughs> I think this is still interesting, but I kind of feel like I also would have liked maybe another half a season of just the girls dealing with, you know, the stuff that the girls had to deal with. Totally. I, I guess maybe it's just like we fear change kind of thing. And I'm <laughs> enjoying it a lot still. There's a lot of good stuff here, but I kind of feel like as the show grows in scope, we sort of lose some of the camaraderie, some of the interactions of of the salon girls. Sarah, it sounds like you agree. Uh, I do. I had a similar note that, I mean, I've seen the first two episodes and I had a great time, but it's like, you know, I think part of the reason that there's a line for the roller coaster isn't just that a lot of people want to go on it. It's to give you a minute between roller coaster rides. (laughs) And it's sort of the same. My note was like, I hope they find a lower gear for a couple episodes because I'm not sure that pitch is effective if you're trying to just be there with like crazy over the top forced nuptials and Molotov cocktails and sisters shooting each other in the face at (laughs) Al, you know, and that was the premiere. And then the second episode just like shift down shifts and goes into a higher gear immediately. And it's like, Oh, okay. I don't, I don't know if you can maintain this, but I'm definitely with Dave that I think that's actually the strength of the show is that um, it's like ordinary relationships and friendships in these extraordinarily weird garish circumstances. And that's what's cool. That's what's cool about it. It's why we like Stephen King or used to. And it's what's good about the show, I think. But they're just going to sort of try to trade on uh, or if they think what makes the show successful is the the volume and not the content, then I don't know. We'll see, I guess. I'm definitely going to keep watching it, of course. I just hope they, you know, <laughs> find a bottle episode so that everybody can take a breath. Yeah, just remember where they started. That's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what they need to do. Yeah, sure. Felt like the first episode was trying to service some of those smaller storylines, but it just made them feel like throwaways, like the references to Arlene, um, Quiet Anne's ex-girlfriend and then like i you know ken and polly are making out or have getting ready to have sex after the wedding and she's like oh, i'm just really worried about marnie like out of nowhere so yeah i agree that they they seem to they they may have a problem with scaling this <laughs> perhaps anyway jeb what were you gonna say i was gonna say i, I don't know if i agree in, in terms of particulars with dave but i think we're on the same page in that like Part of my problem with Breaking Bad was like it was a you know beautifully acted show and like beautifully shot and compelling, but it was like watching five seasons of like waiting for bad news. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just it's the only real note is intensifying like one consistent note is intensifying anxiety, and this show is doing that and it's doing it's ramping it up, and then it's still trying to be like light and garish. So there's that moment in the second episode where they do like a Brady Bunch nine-way split uh, screen to talk about abortion, which was like affecting and effective and really clever. And then there's Mm -hmm. this good vibrations dance sequence that's joyous and wonderful. And both of them feel like they're from different shows because they effectively are. It's like this, you know, if you want to 
think of it as like being a function of camp that works artistically, but tonally it's like this, it's almost like the producers have understood that you need a relief from just escalating anxiety Dread. and discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and, and, and it's, I don't know. I don't know how to feel like if they're doing it because they realize they, they're just on this track and they can't help it. Or if they don't really realize how dissonant it is, but it kind of highlight for me, like how much I don't want to like really pay attention to the series. I'll probably watch it through to the end because it's well done and I enjoy a lot of the characters and it is fun a lot of the time, but I don't need to just jack into feeling anxious all the time. That's what my job and the news and like going outside is for. (laughs) Well, this is exactly what I was just reading the review on Vulture. I think it was Jen Cheney who wrote pretty much exactly that, that there are these two, that the tonal shifts are giving her whiplash and that makes it hard for her to relate to the show. So she's probably not, she's probably out because she can't invest in them because she doesn't believe that these two tones coexist in this world, Um, which I think is a legit objection. And, you know, to your point, like knowing that something bad and lethal is coming always is not a fun way to spend time. So that's fair. But I kind of feel like the wild, you know, disparity between what they tend to do tonally is pretty true like it has a true ring to it to me that that's sort of what life is is like these absurd juxtapositions sometimes and then sometimes you just have to have a dance party in your nail salon that you own (laughs) slash use to launder money who hasn't the other thing is that desna is trying to protect all her girls from you know this this terrible situation that she finds herself in as you know the uh representative you know the lead from from the old uncle daddy world. So insofar that she has to deal with the shit and she tries to keep everything on an even keel with her girls sort of like is the dividing line between the anxious and the familiar, but it's just a matter of like how that plays out in the plot moving forward. Like I suspect a lot of the salon girl storylines are going to revolve around Virginia and uh, pregnancy and marriage And that'll be sort of the anchor for that half of the story moving forward, at least for the next little bit, whether they can pull off that balance in a satisfactory way, you know, for people like, 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 uh, Jeb, that is the question. Um, it, it is a little weird to go back and forth. Um, but when it does get really crazy and goofy, like the good vibrations commercial, it's a lot of fun still. So it's like, Oh, you know, like, like I wish they could just sort of, figure out the transitions better like i think those two elements can coexist in in one show it's just a matter of how they're sort of giving you are they giving you whiplash moving between them or are they making it work but because i feel like this season in many ways is more cartoony than the first season uh certainly in their use of music like whoever is doing the music now seems to be actually taking cues from uh looney tunes like (laughs) <laughs> Flight of the Bumblebee sequence was very funny. The uh, the parking lot chase to the Beach Boys song. Uh, <laughs> you know the, cla- the use of classicals and standards. You know as uh, punctuating a scene seems very pronounced so far in the second season. And I don't think it's bad. I just like it was, it was just like oh it's it's crazy and zanier now. That just sort of highlights 
the disparity between the two towns even more. I guess. I don't know. I didn't find it that jarring because to me, it is all of a piece of like the 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 crazy palette and the and the weird pop selections. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm coming off intensely covering the Americans where every pop choice was like just um, mournful and crushing. <laughs> it wasn't fun ever um, and would ruin those songs that you would hear for you forever because you'll always associate them with those devastating moments of that show, which we're not here to talk about. But I um like the way you were describing it, Jeb, I, what I thought what rep, leapt to mind was um, the series premiere of Six Feet Under and those weird cutaways to like the jokey funeral accoutrement um, commercials that were like interspersed oh, yeah. with the action of the show. And, uh, you know, that's a worse example of what you're talking about. But I guess I see it. I mean, I, I, I take your point. I don't think you're wrong. I just like I think part of it is like we're at this weird dichotomous point in prestige TV where you have a show like Westworld, which is, I think, 18 episodes in. And I don't think anyone's told a joke intentionally. <laughs> and then this, which is like, you know, it, it's taking it, it's spastically funny and, and, and comical and almost undercutting its own premise. Like it's afraid to, it, you know, it, it's afraid to sustain the, the stakes of its world. Like something like Westworld is like, well, you, we can't ever question the seriousness and validity of every artistic choice we're doing because we're building something. So like if someone were to laugh at it, it would shatter the edifice. Like we people can laugh at this, then they might not take it seriously. Whereas in this, it's almost like, well, we've made it so serious now that if we actually had the convictions to follow through on what we're trying to create, we would have no choice but to reveal to the audience how relentlessly grim and frankly terrifying half of this is. So Here's yeah. a dance party. And it's like that that is the same kind of artistic cop out uh, it, to a degree. And I think there, you know, there there is a happy middle that we're not really finding, at least right now. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty happy out here way on the margins. I mean, I was like beaming during that dance break. I totally get what you're saying, Jeb. But like the, the fact that they thought to put a little strip of blue sequins along the V-neck of Dr. Ken's scrubs. <laughs> I just like paused it to beam at the screen because I was just like, this, this pleases me. I, I don't know. Like everything you're saying is completely ne legit from a narrative construction standpoint, but I'm also someone who did not watch more than I had to of Westworld or the Americans because it was just so relentlessly doer. And I was like, well, you know, uh, yeah, this is really dark and maybe they went too, too dark with this, you know, with this Russian storyline and like they're kidnapping babies and people are getting shot in the head and in a, you know, senior facility. But I don't know, like, I'm not sure what they can do about that now. And I kind of enjoy how insane it is. No, I mean, I, I had a great time with it, too. I really enjoyed that sequence and it was fun. And I think it's mainly how fun it is, is what it highlights the uh, the rest of the the, the content and I'd almost as somebody from Florida and who likes Carl Hyacin novels, <laughs> if they're going to do like cartoonish violence and anxiety, they could, I think maybe kind of take a tip from Hyacin. Like there in season one, there's a guy with an emotional support turtle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I and like, that, that was a great touch. Like you don't have to kidnap kids and shoot people in the face. You could like kidnap somebody's turtle as, as right. long as you, <laughs> right. you're building this absurd world. You don't actually have to have like, the violence and anxiety be that uh, profoundly grisly, I guess. 
I want, I'm curious to know whether the season is going somewhere with Polly's character, because she seems to me to be like, I mean, we got a little bit of it in the season premiere where at, in the aftermath of the shooting, she's really like having a nervous breakdown in the salon and they have to sort of talk her out of it by like just making her visualize a, a more peaceful scene and get her to stop doing this asthmatic breathing and stuff. And like, it's funny. Carrie Preston makes it very funny. But I'm curious to see if they sort of take it in a more crazy ex-girlfriend direction where it's like, no, there's going to be a reckoning for all this. Like, you've been sweeping too much with this clearly not well character, uh, sweeping too much stuff under the rug with her. And it's it's going to it's going to explode in a bad way. I, I'm I'm curious to see if that happens or if she's just like the fun time wacky like bucket of quirk character. Instead. They're setting up each character to have a conflict with Desna, right? They've got her right. with their, you know. PTSD. They've got, uh, you know, the whole house situation. They have the pregnancy and they have the, uh, quiet and pining for Arlene still. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, a breakup of the gang seems to be coming. And then what that means for Desna situation as a whole, you know, and how she can reform that gang. I mean, I think that's the arc that's coming. Like there is something about reforming the gang that gets her, uh, some sort of leverage, some sort of, you know, uh, control over her her bigger situation with the Russians right. and Uncle Daddy. So I think that's where they're going. Jeb, you brought us a couple of moments that you wanted to uh, to discuss in particular. Uh, yeah, actually, and it it highlights another quibble I have with the writing. And you can actually just go ahead and play them back to back. They're not connected, but they do kind of under they they indicate the same point really. Ladies. May I introduce my sister Zlata, esteemed author of the Kremlin Connection. Is the Russian answer to Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. Oh, controversial, but I loved it. <clears throat> this money is just the beginning if everybody's doing their job. Too often, we women compete for coveted position in male power structure instead of fomenting fun time sisterhood to show the boys that we can be just as bad and have more fun doing it. So we will change around this Slavic menopause look in here. We will continue co-cooperation. We will discuss expanding of clinics. But for now, we will talk about something more fun. And then the second one is, uh, I think, from earlier in the episode, Outside. But uh, it's basically along the same lines. Tell you something, boys, I don't know how much longer I can deal with being broke. Valens to reassess this whole situation. Two weeks with that, bro? That's an eternity. 24 hours, she, uh, what, she murdered her sister and made my baby boy here marry a commie. Well, maybe we could put some pressure on him, you know, speed it up. Well, the Haitians don't feel any pressure. Them Ruskies took everything we got. We got to do something. Look, I hear you, Uncle Daddy, but we got to be smart about this. Zlata got armed guards. Plus, little Olga told me she got people all the way up in the Kremlin. What's the Kremlin, genius? Potato, tomato, you got to listen up. We got to be smart before she take us down. So, like... One of the writing problems I've always had watching uh, watching shows kind of like this is that um, smart people really don't like to write about dumb people without occasionally showing that the people who are writing the series are very smart. Mm. Like it's mm. it's something that that uh, Dave and I talk about on our Hallmark podcast about the difference between um, Hallmark and Lifetime movies is that like Hallmark goes 100 percent sincere and doesn't care if you think it looks silly like that's their world. That's their emotional stakes. 
you know, you either get on board or just get off. But like lifetime scripts and actors will like often seem like they can't resist winking at the audience, like yeah. just to flash sure. some of that like Ivy League education <laughs> and let you know that even though it sounds dumb, a very smart person made it dumb on purpose. Right. Like um, like the in the Simpsons episode where they get the pool and they go in the why in Marge is like peppering the, the, the pool salesman. Like, can the kids go in the water after X many minutes? And the uh, the wise guys like, lady, I, this is not my day gig. I play keyboards. <laughs> right. And and like this show is littered with like, well, you know, he's got people all the way up in the gremlin. And then the next thing is uh, is like some highbrow joke. They make a joke about the alt-right. They make a joke about Milo Yiannopoulos, like, yeah. which fuck you, by the way, like <laughs> if that guy's not on Twitter anymore. Don't mainstream him further by putting him on TNT. Like, especially if you yeah. don't like him, um, yeah. they've got, uh, and then the, the, um, Desna's friend, the, the, the blonde, Jen, Jen, Jen. So Jen says like, I went to community college and her mom undercuts her. And she's like, okay, I didn't go to college. But then right after that, she tells a Gore Vidal joke. They're making um, they're making the, the commercial and everybody starts using really, you know, like winking, smart in the know Hollywood uh, insider terms like that's what she gets for going off book. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I get that you guys want to flash that you're very clever, um, but you can't run a plot on people consistently looking at problems and looking at possible solutions and then choosing the one that is manifestly the dumbest with the worst downstream consequences for everybody over and over and then turn right around and go like, well, that reminds me of a Piero della Francesca. No, (laughs) like you either need to bury your ego and write these people as they are, or you need to lift them up, but you can't, you can't make, you can't have these punchlines at their expense and and for the audience's delight like that. And I think it's partly why I think I had classism on the brain, because there is kind of like a classist element to that. Like, we're going to go on white trash safari. We're going to go on yokel safari. And we're going to look at how squalid and stupid these people's lives are and how silly, you know, the silly decisions they make. But then we're going to go like, hey, it's not so bad because we've got we've got some Gore Vidal material for you, you know, because we're. <laughs> We're smart people. It's okay. Smart people are in charge. And uh, that tonal inconsistency happens a lot. And and they do it for they take the easy out a lot with it. I mean, it's not I'm not saying it's not fun. I mean, like I said, the rest of the episode is fun. The rest of the episodes are fun. I'll probably let the series play out in the background, you know, um, until it ends just to see where it goes. But I don't know. Yeah. I laughed at Gremlin Connections. I'm not going to lie. You like the Gremlin Connection? <laughs> gremlin Connections. I don't know why. Yeah. But it made me laugh for a minute straight for some reason. Well, yeah, I definitely made a note of a line like that, that I was like driving a station wagon, like a bunch of indigo girls. Like, oh, I didn't yeah. think it rang true for that <laughs> character. And it was definitely that cheap having it both ways split, like you said. But I still yeah. laughed at it. I also think there's probably something to be untangled in terms of like the that the in terms of the show and our and our times. TM that the uh, the characters that are most dismissive and hateful toward what they call hillbillies or rednecks or whatever are the Russians. Like, okay, we get it. Like, we're 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 supposed to be on one side or the other of this debate. Got it. Like, you don't have to keep hammering on it or pickling on it, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, hammer and pickle. That was, that was good. Uh, yeah. Good. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All in fun, guys. <laughs> 
Well, I love the show. I'm I'm glad it's back. Everything you're saying, Jeb, is true, and yet I you know <laughs> I I can't I can't help I can't help loving it so much. And it's a, a huge amount of that is like the Niecy Nash glow because I just I tr- I treasure her. I just think she's the best. She is, and yeah, same same thing Tara said. I mean, le- these these are all legit points, um, and not in the show's favor, but. Um, I loved it immediately, and I will continue to love it. Jeb has convinced me I'm never watching another moment of this show again, <laughs> nor am I Good watching job, any other TV except for Frontline. <laughs> it is time to go around the dial. First stop, Tara Ariano. Uh, just a couple more notes from the Claws panel. And by the way, I will be doing epic old school recaps of Claws all this season on previously.tv. The first one is already there. Check it out. Um, the, uh, they had to all go to nail boot camp. they said. So they actually did learn how to do this stuff and apparently each developed like, uh, special skills. So Nisi Nash is good at acrylics and nail art. Uh, Carrie Preston does gels and Judy Reyes does pedicures. And they all did have their claws done, of course, for the panel. They held their hands up like uh, Carrie Preston did have charms on like chain charms on all of her nails. Uh, But they said if all of the salons in the world somehow get closed or all of the estheticians get raptured, the cast of claws has us covered nail wise. So good to know. The other uh, interesting thing was that um, Judy Reyes said that although the, the pilot was originally written um, kind of race blind or race unspecified. The exception was Quiet Anne, who was written as a six foot Samoan lesbian, which <laughs> is not. And so she sort of talked about how her process of building that character before her audition and how she had to, do, you know, s- come up with an idea for her aesthetically because, you know, obviously physically she was not a match. And I, you know, I can't imagine anyone else playing that part. So uh, great panel. Um, I also uh, saw. They did a screening of the first um, episode of Breaking Bad that Saul Goodman is in. So it's a early episode, season two, I think. Uh, <clears throat> Skylar is still pregnant, so it must be early. But uh, And then they had a conversation afterwards with Vince Gilligan and uh, Bob Odenkirk. And um, Bob Odenkirk, see, I mean, as much as you can tell from a panel, which not much, but like really seems to be the nicest man and like super grateful to have been given this part because he like still all these years later and, and a spinoff later still talks about it like in marveling tones um, that he, you know, he didn't have to audition for this part. Like Vince Gilligan just wrote it for him and gave it to him and says, says to him on stage, I don't know why you ever trusted me. Um, and, and says that, you know, said watching it, he was surprised by how much of it he was in. Cause he didn't remember how big a part he had, which is pretty big. It's a really good episode. Go back and watch it. Um, and uh, yeah, great conversation between two people that obviously have a huge affection for this character. And Vince Gilligan was like very effusive about the coming season four, which is premiering in August and said he felt like he could do that um, without com- without conflict because he doesn't really work on it that much anymore. And apparently started working on Better Call Saul like two days after they had wrapped the final edit on the uh, Breaking Bad series finale. So this is a man who likes to work noted. And Monster. then <clears throat> what's that? 
monster. <laughs> then I went to uh, the reunion of the cast of Felicity, which was very schmoopy and very screamy. Uh, brought back a lot of memories of the Gilmore Girls reunion a few years ago. Uh, they sat Carrie Russell right between Scott Foley and Scott Speedman, just like we all wanted. It was very cute. Greg Grenberg uh, talked a lot for the size of his part on the actual show, but he's funny, so it was fine. And uh, Ian Gomez like made fun of him for jumping in and answering other people's questions, which was cute. And there was also, a, I guess it's a reunion, I mean, a final panel for the Americans, uh, where hilariously um, they had to redo the seating because the moderator, when he was calling everybody out, forgot Henry, like <laughs> life imitating art. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was very funny to watch them answer questions about the show now that like they they don't there's nothing for them to spoil. Like clearly they all still are shell shocked from the experience of like doing this during the run of the show and being scared to say anything that they're not supposed to. And so they had to keep being told like, it's okay. You can answer. Um, but yeah, another very cute cast and um, no answers on any of the big questions. Like of course, some idiot brought up is Renee a spy. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not a question. Like if the show wanted you to know, it would have told you. Um, but yeah, ATX festival. And then I, I was on a panel also, and I moderated a panel and those were both fine. I think they will be up on YouTube at some point. Um, so follow me at Tara Ariano. I will plug those if, and when they come out, but, uh, the ATX festival is a really good time. Um, they get amazing people. I was, every time I come, it's a, it's a, it's a really fun, uh, it's like comic con for normal people, like no cosplay and no obnoxious fan types. Um, so if you've never been, uh, you should check it out next year. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart stopping thrillers and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now! Uh, not knowing anything about their lineup, um, I'm sure it will be great. So that's my big plug for the ATX. And for my other plug, I will also say the Will and Grace and Kevin and Tara season finale is uh, season one finale is this week. So look out for that on Thursday morning. Now I'm done. Sarah D. Bunting. 
so this past Monday, uh, as you're listening to this two nights ago, uh, A&E aired this biography special called David Cassidy, The Last Session, which his family is not happy about because it turns out that he died from complications of alcoholism and it had nothing to do with dementia, uh, which Obitz tended to say um, was the case. Um, and this sort of was all unfolding on camera because he had gotten, I guess, I don't think he got a dementia diagnosis, but he said that he did as a way to explain why he was forgetting lyrics and falling off stage at performances. It was actually because he had not stopped drinking and the dementia was also because he had not stopped drinking. And by the time they finally sort of like figured that out and got a plan in place to detox his liver slash try to get him a new one, it was too late and he passed away. Uh, But this documentary began as um a like a record of him recording this tribute album to his father who was also an actor and singer before he sort of no longer had the mental focus to do it and it is a it's a rough sit um i'm not seeing it on on demand i don't think they're rerunning it and i Maybe it's just as well. I'm pretty sure that you could see it on the A&E website, but, you know, the man looks 10 years older than he was, which was 67. He's visibly intoxicated at morning doctor's appointments, at morning recording sessions, um, clearly, like, not being truthful about his intake of various things. And then this is all juxtaposed with that. 40 years old, um, like independent radio interview that nobody's heard in, in since like 1976, um, about, uh, David Cassidy, just talking to this guy about the experience of being a teen idol and trying to transition out of that and not getting a piece of any of the gazillion merchandising things that his face appeared on. Uh, and the naked Rolling Stone cover and all of that. Like, it's an interesting idea. And I think if facts had not come to light about um, him just continuing to battle addiction and uh, losing to that disease at the end, it, it still would have been sad, but it would have been also, uh, you know, it's an interesting idea and well-constructed, but it is bleak. And... um I really felt very sad for him that that's that's how it all that's how it all ended um, for that guy, which uh, sort of ironically and tragically is kind of how it ended for his father, who also had a drinking issue, fell asleep and was and like a lit cigarette just ended everything in that apartment. So, uh, yeah, um, (laughs) cheery stuff. Thanks, Buncey. Uh David Cassidy, Yay! the last session. <laughs> yeah, it, it's good. D- try to avoid it. Um, here's something that's decidedly more cheery as my plug. Speaking of music, uh, I have a podcast with my co-host, Mark Blankenship. It's called Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. And uh, this uh, week we are talking about Miley Cyrus <laughs> slash Hannah Montana. 
it was really fun. There's also going to be a contest um, and you could win a t-shirt. So have a listen. It's Mark and Sarah talk about songs on all of your reputable podcast providers and also the other ones. Let the wide stick give you the edge. Speed stick, super dry, antiperspirant. Sharp objects. <laughs> it's time for the canon. Jeb is submitting this week. Take it away, Jeb. Uh, so I picked the episode Three Men and Adina from Homicide Life on the Street. So for those unfamiliar with it, uh, before he made The Wire or The Corner, uh, David Simon was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, and he spent a year embedded with the BPD homicide unit in the late 1980s, and he eventually produced a book called Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets. <clears throat> it's a tremendous book, and if you like The Wire, it will feel very familiar. It, he creates fully realized character sketches of all the cops and alternately rages at the broken system and copes with it through deeply mordant, uh, often very, very funny observations. Uh, the book was the inspiration for Homicide Life on the Street, which ran for seven seasons in the 90s on NBC and was filled with a lot of names that you probably recognize now. But the two biggest, at least in terms of the heart of the show, are Andre Brower, who, uh, who plays Frank Pembleton and who you probably know from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and uh, Kyle Secor as Tim Bayless, who you might know from season one of Veronica Mars. And unfortunately, he really hasn't had the career he deserved. Um, but the heart of the show is actually... You know, for especially the the early seasons, the heart of the show is is a room. It's called the box. It's the interrogation room, and it actually got to be so much a part of the show that Brower uh, told the producers at one point that he could not keep going into the box, and hmm. he demanded that they write something else for his character because it it became so powerful and evocative that it almost felt like the writers had an urge to get them in there. Um, so, uh, with this episode, like you can understand why they did that. Like with the, the impact this, this episode had, you could see why they would be like, that's home and we need to get back there. Um, Three men in Adina is effectively just a bottle episode. You get to see John Polito and Melissa Leo and Yafet Kato in a couple of bumpers and uh, Richard Belzer in a couple of bumper scenes. But for the most part, it's just Brower and Secor in the box with Moses Gunn in his last role. Uh, Gunn plays a guy named Risley Tucker, the Araber, a man who takes a horse-drawn cart full of fresh fruit through the neighborhoods of Baltimore, and he's been accused of raping and murdering an 11-year-old girl named Adina Watson. Uh, the case is one that winds up haunting Bayless throughout the course of the series in the same way that the murder of another girl named Latonya Wallace haunted the man that Bayless is based on, uh, Detective Tom Pellegrini, in real life for years. Um, the episode is, is Bayless and Pembleton's last stab at nailing the Araber. We find out that they have 12 hours with him alone in the box, a minute more, and any defense attorney can throw out any confession they get as coerced by exhaustion. So they have to prep the room for the maximum psychological leverage. And this is something you wind up seeing later in Mindhunter, but it was on NBC in the 90s. You know, the idea of the whole room being different focal points for someone in desperation to see and then start inferring that investigators know more about him than he thinks they do. And the goal is to induce the confession because really everything else they have on Risley Tucker is circumstantial. It's really hard to pick any one clip of this because like a, a good play, it winds up building on preceding language and preceding ideas and, and, and sort of accreting significance. And to give you a really good sense of how powerful it is, we'd have to play the scenes that kind of give away the twists and turns. But here, um, 
they're basically, I think, six hours into this session in the box together. And they've reached a point where uh, Bayless and Pembleton have to force the issue. They've tried sympathy. They've tried good cop, bad cop, pressure, outright contempt. And now they're going for something like all of them at once. All right, don't say it. All right? Don't Tell me something. Did you ever love somebody, Risley? Did you ever love somebody? She was never in my barn. She was never in your barn. Right. Never? She worked for you, Risley. You just told us she was there. I just said never. Which is? Was it never or what? She was there? Right. She was in the barn? Right. Yeah. She was there in the barn that night. Right? No. You just told us she was there! Right? Yeah, no, no, I... You see this? That's a fact from the National Crime Index. You got a rape on your sheet. Mm, statutory rape. A 14-year-old girl. Ooh. Charges were dropped. 14-year-old girl. That was 15 years ago. Statutory rape. The charges were dropped. That doesn't mean anything. How do we know you didn't threaten the girl to get her to drop the charges? How do we know? Did you ever try to kiss Adina? No. No, that night while you were watching TV, hmm, you didn't kiss or anything like that? No. When she was in the barn, you didn't have sex with her then? No. She was never in the barn and you never had sex with her, right? No. No. We all know what you're about. You like young girls and they like you. That's fine as far as that goes. As long as they keep quiet about things, you don't have any problem. Well, you got this one rule, don't you? This one rule, Just which must be followed. one rule that's got to be obeyed. And we all know what that one rule is, don't we? If you cry, you die. If you cry, you die. Yeah, that's the one rule that's got to be obeyed. If they cry, then they die. Now, you like little girls and you like it when they like you. But if they cry, then they die. That is what happened to Adina. She cried and she died. You answer me this! Are you sure that you didn't do it? Be straight with me. Are you positive that you didn't do it in your own mind right now? Not right now. I'm not. The way the episode is shot is surprisingly kinetic. Uh, handheld cameras keep things in motion just to give a sense of instability, which makes you feel like the camera is almost breathing in the room with them. Uh, shots alternate on close-ups, uh, on eyes and faces, and then cut away to askew perspectives from the back of the room. You, as the viewer, are basically trapped with them as much as Risley, and you're trapped with Risley as much as they are. I don't want to say a lot more, but the last part is important because Bayless and Pembleton are trying to construct this prison of language around Tucker that's as close to airtight, so the only escape is through the confession. Uh, they're unwittingly building this world, though, as they're doing that, in which he's as powerful as they are. So they have him in a box that's freezing cold, and then it builds to being unbearably hot, and they have all the power of the state. They are the man. But the only tool they have is telling a story, and that's a tool that Tucker has, too. So Tom Fontana, who executive produced the show and later created Oz, wrote this episode. He has a theater background and he wasn't afraid to give Tucker that power. So you don't know if you're trapped in the box with a monster or a victim and you don't know if what you're feeling and what you want to happen to him is justice or abuse. But Fontana makes you wonder really strongly if it's the latter. Moses Gunn's performance is tremendous. It's an agony to watch because it feels exactly like what you would probably feel like in that box. You're angry, you're afraid, you're resentful, you're contemptuous, and you're very, very small. But you're also the one who has the answers. You have some control. And Risley Tucker takes it, and Moses Gunn, as an actor, takes it, and eventually he becomes the biggest thing in the room. 
You can't look away from him and you can't hide from the questions he starts to make you ask. Is he innocent? Is he guilty? And worst of all, even if he is guilty, does your heart still break for him anyway? So there's, there are no long montages. It's not Claire Fisher driving off into the future at the end of the show. It's not Bono wailing while Paige steps out on the train platform and the train pulls away and Elizabeth is watching helplessly. Eight different season-long arcs aren't getting strung together at once and trying to blow your mind and then ending with a twist. It's season one. It's episode five. It's right in the middle of everything else. And it's still the single best hour that anybody's ever put on broadcast TV. Wow. Okay. Um, I went to a panel at the Paley Center uh, about homicide life on the street uh, last month. And they did a montage of the episodes before um, the panel proper. And this episode and the scene that we just heard, the clip that we just heard, figured heavily in it. Um, And I, I think that this is... I think this was the episode in which the show sort of arrived um, for the people who love it, who are, you know, like people, even though they kept moving it on the schedule, uh, people are very loyal to it. I didn't follow the show as closely as I could have at the time, but I continue to be shocked, stunned and saddened that it's not available on streaming anywhere uh, because it's a great show. It can be very frustrating. Uh, but this is an excellent example. I think this is widely considered an all-time great episode of TV, period. Uh, probably one of the best of this show. That and the one where uh, D'Onofrio gets stuck under a subway. The subway. Um, yeah, that that would be it. Previous um, canon inductee, the subway. The subway. Indeed. Uh, the the play-like rhythms that sort of theatrical rhythms of the language are uh, definitely in effect here. This is one of the few shows that where that would not annoy me. That staginess I think is very uh, pointed and, and I enjoy it here. I would also like to note um, like Brower, this is like almost a different Brower in terms Mm -hmm. of like substance but yeah. he's, I mean, he's great. He's so charismatic. Um, like the way he yells mad dog is just like, well, that's why, that's why you're Andre Brower. You're the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would also like to know that there's a little scene. They do sort of give you a break occasionally by cutting outside and having people like arguing over who's going to pay for sandwich sandwiches and stuff like that. And they're in the, bathroom at some point i think this is polito's character the late great john polito who's like do you have any toilet paper in that stall and no you got five ones for a five and they just just cut away and i was like oh my god i can't believe that got by like this used to air at like eight o'clock nine o'clock so yeah that was that was good um yeah i think this hits all the i think this checks all the canon boxes it gives you that good baltimore texture um there's the there's the cop show trope um that they use but then invert um like good cop bad cop and uh there's the uh there is a conspiracy theory but it's not being espoused by munch for once um it's polito again being like how do we know john wilkes booth you know died in that barn um and uh it's all the it's all the acting sort of 
Phillips good and bad of Secor and um, of Brower. Bayless, uh, Bayless made me want to shake him almost every week, but um, this is a great episode for him. And it is a little puzzling that that guy didn't get much more famous. And I wonder why. I wonder why that is. I wonder if, did you guys ever do a fame tracker, two stars, one slot on him and uh, McLaughlin? No, but that would work. Because yeah. I feel like maybe there might have been a <laughs> not enough not enough room on the voyage issue there. Uh, anyway, excellent uh, presentation. I think the streamlined one clip approach is exactly what's called for here. And I'm going <laughs> to turn it over to Tara. Okay. Yeah, I was um, I was like at the beginning of this because I watched Homicide, but I don't you know I never owned the DVDs. I don't have a huge memory of it. And so when it started, and it was clear it was going to be a bottle episode and an interrogation. I was like really concerned because it's like so many bad cop shows like just you know elevate the the interrogation and make cops seem heroic and like we all know because we live in the real world that this is not necessarily how things actually are with suspects or police officers but what's great about this episode is that it does leave it in an ambiguous place and you it does you know even if you start at, at, at the beginning obviously both of the police officers are you know, leaning very heavily toward him being the guy. Um, but as you said, Jeb, like the, the length of it and the, the, that you feel, you feel the torture of what they're doing. Um, it does feel very claustrophobic to watch. I mean, it is kinetic, but it also like when it gets hot, it feels hot to watch it. <laughs> like it's very evocative. Um, and, and I, and I appreciate that it doesn't end triumphantly for the, for the detectives either. Like that's obviously the point but you know it gives it gives all three of the performers in that space um you know the the chance to shine in you know horrible circumstances and it was funny because uh when maureen ryan recent guest of the show was here um for the festival we were out for dinner with her and we were talking about how many episodes it takes as a critic for you to you know watch screeners and decide if it's if it's going to be worth your time and we sort of settled on like five is about where you should feel that a show is locked in. And that's been true of a lot of recent canon submissions, actually. And this is of a piece with those, I think, that like, as Sarah said, this is where the show came into its own. It does it, it you know, it if you didn't necessarily know coming into this blind that this was season one, episode five, it would it would feel much more assured than you would necessarily think for how short a time it had been on the air and how much they can convey about, you know, Frank's gifts as an interrogator and his frustration with this young guy who doesn't really know his style and doesn't know what he's doing and isn't matching what he's supposed to and is like fucking up his flow. Um, <laughs> it does, it does so many things well. So this was, this was a uh, wonderful to watch. Thank you for bringing it to us, Dave. Uh, so I get that this episode is an intimate play written as an episode of TV but the acting, the dialogue, the sort of the early bombacity of it, it took me a while to get used to. But when I did, I was like full in. But just like when you're watching this for the first time and like Tara, like I've seen Homicide before, but I'm not like conversant in it. Uh, actually, I think the first episode I ever saw was the Robin Williams episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is and a good one. Which is also, yeah. Yeah. Just like a devastating or he's in, is it one episode or was it a, an arc or like a two episode thing? I, I don't remember. Do I was, I just remember it was like it was really good. understated for Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
so coming into this, I was like the, the the presentation of the language. It's sort of like a, you know, I could definitely see watching this exact performance on Broadway on, or some mm-hmm. little, small little theater. Like it works very well that way. But there there was five minutes where I had to like make my peace with uh just like the actual tone of it, the way people were projecting everything and the way sentences started and stopped. And it was just like, it's not bad and it's not goofy. It's just different from what you're used to watching. So it just took yeah, me yeah, that sure. little while to recalibrate myself to what I was watching. And it really, you know, I'm watching a play on TV um, that benefits, as Jeb was saying, from a lot of the interesting camera work and the way they dress the set in the clip that he he played. There's a rustling of paper, which was like a map that was hiding a whole bunch of crime scene photos that they tear down at a, at, you know, at, at a crucial moment to sort of put the pressure up to 11 and, you know, things like that you can definitely see working on the stage, but then like you, you get to uh, omit certain things from the presentation via the camera and it makes it all the more claustrophobic because of it. So uh, if you uh, decide to watch this episode, you know, based on the submission and you feel like you're, watching something that seems affected it just like it will you just need to calibrate recalibrate and then and then it's smooth sailing from there and everything else everybody said i totally agree with like the performances are amazing uh the way like at first i i wasn't sure if the relationship between pemilton and other guy help me out bayless bayless <laughs> uh if that sort of the way they were working against each other was part of their plan or whether yeah. they were just not in sync you know there's there's a tension right from the start and you're sort of used to nowadays everything being written as if no matter what occupation you're in you're a superhero so you're going into that interrogation room in 2018 and you're already in sync the uh the end game's predetermined because you're so brilliant and therefore you would know that this sort of tension this sort of seeming miscommunication between these two police officers would actually be, you know, part of the, their genius, but that's not the way it works here. They're really just like, they're, they're coming at it from two different ways and they're sort of at loggerheads. And it's not resolved in the end either. No. Which I also liked that. It's like, he's your partner. You go tell him. And he's like, well, why can't you to the bot to Giardello? Like, well, why can't you tell him he did a good job? Like he's your partner. You do it. And then it's still not quite right. And it, and it plays into the ascendancy of the interrogate E Sue, how how he sort of like gains his power as the episode goes on, as they're still they're not playing at a hundred percent, right? They're each bringing you know half a game, but they're not. It's not the sum of their parts. Flawed characters in this situation, not only true to life, even though this is like very bombastic, and you know, you never actually probably see something like this in a real interrogation room, but like it feels human. Uh, I really did enjoy this quite a bit. So with that, let's put this to an official vote, shall we? Sarah D. Bunting? Uh, absolutely, yes. Tari Ariana? Yep, me too. Me too. So. Yay! That means Homicide, a Life on the Street. This is Season 1, Episode 5, Three Men and Adina. Oh, I forgot to say, terrible title. You are hereby inducted into <laughs> the Extra Hot Great Canon. <laughs> You know, it's a little, it's a little punny for the subject matter. It's a little flip. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit corny. Uh, 
Americans love a winner. Yeah. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. Time for winner and a loser of the week. Who has our winner? I have uh, our, well, winner, uh, our third place winner, uh, Teresa Judice of The Real Housewives of New Jersey, apparently has begun uh, another career in competitive bodybuilding and uh, came in third (laughs) in the over 40 bikini division of a bodybuilding contest in New Jersey over the weekend. No, there were not only four people in it. it. She was like in the top half of her division. You haven't seen anything this burnt orange since you watched CNN this morning. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it's, oh, it's a little it's a little upsetting, but um, like her her butt does look pretty good. She obviously worked very hard. Um, it's just, you know, orange to, you know, play up the definition or whatever one does in those competitions. But uh, the work paid off, I guess she got a. Got a yellow ribbon, so good for her. And uh, I hope that's maybe the end of that, because I mean, this is supposed wants- to be a storyline next season, and I oh, don't no. think I can. Even I may have to quit. <laughs> like, she was already two-thirds of the way there being very orange and shiny, so she mm-hmm. might as well have just gone whole hog, as it were. But anyway. And I think she she still has the um, the boobs that she oh, bought in like right. the third season. So Sure, sure. Well, you need those. Uh, All right. Anyway, I have our loser and it is, alas, People of Earth, the TBS sitcom, uh, not getting a third season. It has been canceled. Dave, I don't know if you knew about this. I did. I saw it was approved then canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So like uh, it's part of a trend of sitcoms getting canceled, although, you know, when very weird ones like this or Last Man on Earth get canceled, I guess we shouldn't be that surprised. Uh, the the doorbell's ringing. The dogs are going crazy. So interesting fact about uh, extra hot gray and this new digs here in Austin is that uh, our grass is really long, so we haven't had it cut yet for various reasons. And about every other day, somebody knocks on our door or rings our bell and offers <laughs> to cut our grass. And that's what that was. If you heard bells ringing and dogs barking, which brings us to an interesting question: Do you know what time it is? <laughs> It's not Time regulation to cut game the time. lawn. <laughs> Both those things. <laughs> we are between seasons, and traditionally, this is when we get to have a non-regulation game time so that Dave can play. Hooray! Today's game is by me, and it is called. Dumpsters fired. So perhaps you have heard that a lot of people have recently been getting themselves fired from their TV projects by being gross. That's the inspiration for today's non-regulation game time. I will give you the name of a person whose criminal, hateful, or merely obnoxious behavior caused him or her to get fired, or in some instances caused the show to get canceled. For one point, you give me the name of the show. There are 24 questions and a tiebreaker. Do you have any questions before we begin? That sounds simple to me. Same. We will start with Sarah. Okay, let's go Sarah, Jeb, Dave. Are you ready to play Dumpsters, Fired? Sure am. You sure about God? All right. Sarah, debunting. Charlie Rose. Uh, The Charlie Rose Show? (laughs) Is that on what it's called? 
No. It's okay. not. <laughs> it's just called Charlie Rose. Ah, okay. Jeb, Tavis Smiley. The Tavis Smiley Show? It's just called Tavis Smiley. Damn Carter. it! Damn it! <laughs> Dave, Roseanne. Roseanne. Thank Correct. you. God. Ding, 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 ding. All right. Wait, was Those there, are supposed w- to be gimmies for you guys. Come on now. Was there a pattern here? I don't know. No. Just for those three. <laughs> just for those three. I was trying to start you off nice and easy. <laughs> you guys overthought it. Moving on. Sarah D. Bunting. I meant the Roseanne show. What? I meant to say the Roseanne show. (laughs) Sarah, Jeffrey Tambor. The Transparent Show? Just kidding. Transparent. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Jeb, Jeremy Piven. Um, uh, uh, I don't know what, uh, the only, the last show I remember he was on was Entourage. It's Wisdom of the Crowd. The terrible wisdom of the crowd. Okay. Dave. Yeah. Kevin Spacey. House of Cards. Correct. Ding. The House of Cards. Show. Sarah Deventing. <laughs> Valerie Harper. What? What? <laughs> <sighs> Valerie's kids? I should know this, but I don't. Theoretical steel meal. <laughs> yes. Valerie. Yeah, it's just called Valerie. God damn it. Jeb. But then she didn't do anything horrible, wasn't that? That was no, a but low... she got fired from being obnoxious, I assume. No, it was a labor dispute. It was like she, I think it was a, all about money. I think it wasn't her being awful. It was the network. And then, Oh, well, then and I they apologize were like, for that question. And then geez. Jason Bateman stepped in to defend the network. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Could have, though. Well, it doesn't change the fact that Sarah didn't. The rest of Jason these, Bateman I, I of the Jason Bateman show? People. What's that? Uh, sorry, it was just a... Awful. Never mind. Ignore. Okay. It wasn't worth it. I ruined your thing. For, <laughs> it's for you, Mark Halperin. Oh shit. Um. Uh, he was on multiple shows. Uh, there was the one on Bloomberg that was like simulcast on MSNBC, and then uh, he's on that god awful uh, The Fourth Estate. The circus. The circus. You're on the right track. Shit. That is the, sh- yeah. the showtime. Okay, Dave. Yeah. Kim Delaney. Kim Delaney. I know that name. Kim Delaney. Uh, uh. You're never going to get it. Okay. CSI Miami. Oh, okay. No, I wasn't. Oh, was she? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, she was drunk. There was a DUI thing. Oh. Um, Sarah Bunting. Yes. Speaking of drunk, Robert Downey Jr. Oh, no, that's terrible. Allie McBeal? Correct. Ding, ding, ding. Jeb, Brett Butler. Um, oh, um, what was her show? Is it Grace Under Fire? Ding, correct. Ding, ding, ding. Nice. David T. Cole. Bill O'Reilly. Uh, the Bill O'Reilly show. (laughs) (laughs) Dave watches, Dave reads a different internet from the rest of us, you guys. The O'Reilly factor. Can we get a score break? Sure. Just for fun, <laughs> let's everybody say their own scores. Sarah D. Bunting. I have two. Jeb. One. And I have two. And those are the scores at this point in the game. All right. Moving on. Sarah D. Bunting. Isaiah Washington. Grey's Anatomy. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Jeb. Jeremy Clarkson. 
Top Gear. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. Dave, there are two possible answers for this one, but you only get points for one. Shannon Doherty. <laughs> Charmed? Ding, 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 ding. Yes. Good job, Dave. <laughs> Back to Sarah. Matt Lauer. The Today Show. Ding, ding, ding. Correct. Deb. Dana Plato. I don't even know who that is. Oh. <laughs> oh. R.I.P. Uh, anyone care to jump in just for funsies? Uh, I think Sarah should answer this one. Yeah. Different strokes. Correct. <laughs> Dave. Yeah. Lane Crawford. Oh. Oh. Um, That's not a lethal real name. <laughs> what was that, Dave? Lethal weapon. Ding, ding, ding. Correct. Sarah D. Bunting, Louis C.K. I'm not going to say the Louis show. I'm not going to say the Louis show. <laughs> Louis? Correct. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, Brian Williams. Um, uh, uh, NBC Nightly News. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. Dave. Yep. Annie Masterson. Oh, shit. Uh, uh, Wait, hold on. Don't buzz me out. Shit. I, I, I know it's a Netflix show. Correct. It is a Netflix show. It is. It is no, I'm not going to remember the name. It's it's uh, it's, it's like the hours or something like that. <laughs> the Horde. Else? I don't know. The Ranch. The, ranch the Horde. The Ranch. It yeah. is. The yeah, Ranch. Yeah. The ranch. It's a Mongol right. comedy. <laughs> Everyone has one question left. Let's get another uh, one more score break. The yep. board. Amazing. Five for Sarah, three for Jeb, four for me. Ooh. Done. Sarah's got to got to screw this up. Good luck, uh, Sarah. Are... <laughs> Sarah, for you, Columbus Short. Uh, scandal. Ding ding ding! Correct. What? Jeb, Charlie Sheen. Uh, two and a half men. Ding, 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 ding. Correct. Dave. Uh, the randomizer does not favor you this day. Taylor Momsen. Taylor Momsen. Good Speaking old Taylor Momsen. names aren't names. Of course, of Gossip Girl. What the fuck? Yes. What the <laughs> fuck, Dave? Good job. How do you know that? That was a total guess. <laughs> wow. That was a very of good guess. All the shows of the world. Oh, all right. Man. Let's get a final score break then. Well, it's a squeaker, but Sarah D. Bunting takes the victory. Uh, one point. One yes. point victory for Sarah D. One point amongst all of us. Sarah. Sarah. But <laughs> uh, for nothing, because okay. I, I don't have the power to dish anything out. That's true. Here, here is the name. This is just for glory. Okay. Donald Trump. The apprentice. Yes. That's correct. <laughs> that was, uh, by the way, worth one victory. Whoa. Yeah, for me. So I won. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Except how you tied, though. So now we don't have a tiebreaker. No, no I won. No, like it, it, I, you, you know, lost and I won. It's unfair. <laughs> it's not really the way we usually do things, but. Way to go, Sarah. <laughs> well, guys, that is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We explored the Gremlin connection in the second season of Claws before going around the dial with stops at the ATX Festival and 
David Cassidy's last session, and Sharp Objects. Jeb made the successful case to add Homicide's three med and Adina to the canon. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and I, of course, was the winner of this week's non-regulation game time as far as the official <laughs> Dave <laughs> listings are concerned. No, 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 no. Remember. We're listening. I am David Tickle on behalf of Tari Ariana. You have five ones for a five? Sarah, real winner bunting. <laughs> we write these things down. It's a habit. And Jeff Lund. <laughs> I'm going to read every trivia TV book I can find uh, so I can Dr. Claw my way back into contention for next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time right here on Extra. Not great. You know, uh, Dennis, something tells me you're getting off on how shit's turned out. Welcome to the new normal. Are we clear? Good. Because I got some other shit I could be doing right now. This has been a production of the Previously.tv podcast network.